Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tobin. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talkart. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling transgressive. Oof, that's a nice feeling. But I'm also feeling transgressive in Technicolor. Because today's guest's work is so bright and so joyous and so full of colour that I can't feel any other way. And uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm a real recent fan actually. I, I recently discovered our guest work through the gallery in London, White Cube, due to their very vibrant uh, large scale paintings. And then you are a very big fan, nice. and um, have been telling me about shows at like Michael Cohn Gallery in America, and just the fact that there is big news, which we will reveal shortly in this episode about a new exhibition which is just about to open in New York City, um, in a public gallery. So that's extremely exciting. And um, today's guests are literally just pulsating with flamboyant colour. And I really think they're going to bring a lot of joy to people. But within them, the kind of context that surrounds them and also the kind of con- the ideas behind the work is a, a lot of ideas of kind of dismantling uh, binary and fixed identity. So it's really of our time and of our moment. And I feel like today's guest is a really great person who's pushing forward kind of ideas of social change within their paintings. And it's really exciting. So we are very uh, proud to welcome to Talk Art, Ilana, Ilana Sabdi. Hi, Ilana. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. This is the only way I ever want to be introduced in any scenario of any kind. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> we can uh, we can record it for you. You can put it on your phone. So when it rings, you just get Ilana Savdi coming up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you in the world, Ilana? Uh, currently in my studio in Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York. So you're based in Brooklyn. You were raised between Columbia and Miami. Yes. How did you find yourself in Brooklyn? So um, I moved to Miami when I was 13 and immediately decided I need to get myself to New York somehow at the age of 13. So I went to art school in Providence at RISD and then, you know, sort of spent as much time as possible coming in and out of New York. So New York was always an end game for me. And, you know, I did sort of give it like the good college try and a few other places before I was like, no, it's New York. So I've been here for the past almost 13 years. 
And why New York at that age? Like, what was it about the the idea of New York versus obviously the reality when you moved there? But, but mm-hmm. what was it the kind of that, that sang to you and spoke to your heart? I, mean, I think it was the mythology around just like the magic of New York. I think like the idea that everything came and melted together and just, you know, it was sort of the misfits from everywhere could kind of come to New York and find a home. I, I do still believe that's true. It's just kind of the perpetual pricing out of said people, said misfits is not quite um, the mythology of New York that I bought into at the beginning. Um, but everyone I think here still is pushing through because it is still, I mean, it still is the, a center of the art world, even though the art world has been quite decentralized, I think, through the internet and the ability to, you, you still have the amount, the excess of just like culture here that you can't quite, uh, and and variety. I think it's really important to me to be around all kinds of people that are comfortable being around all kinds of people. And I think that's becoming more and more of a commodity in this country than I would like. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think it is? Uh, central for art and the art community what is it about the city and especially Brooklyn because we talk to so many artists and Bushwick in particular there is a real artistic community there why do you think that that has been the place where everybody's kind of collected I can't really say exactly I think it's you know the more cynical version of me thinks that galleries go where there's money and money New York is where there, where a lot of people with money are kind of concentrated um, and artists want to be where galleries are. So that's a kind of more cynical way that I look at it, but I'm here because other artists are here. Right. And because, you know, you throw a rock out the street and you hit like five incredible, brilliant artists that you've admired your whole life, you know? And I think that that you can't, there are other places in the world that you find that. And, you know, I think if I had to leave New York, I'd go to any of these <laughs> other places, but the concentration of it, I think, and the, the the standards are pretty high for for artists. So you really have to push yourself, and I, I like that. I respond. I'm a sponge to my environment. I respond to that. So being a spongy environment, then growing up, what was the art that you was a sponge for? How did you discover art where you're from, and what was it that was making you feel like that was a career that you could actually go to? I mean, I blame it all on my mother. <laughs> she. Uh, <laughs> As a little kid, before I could speak, I was drawing. And so uh, she immediately recognized that and exposed me to as much as possible. She always wanted to be, um, she always wanted to go to art school and her father kind of forced her to go to medical school, which was a totally different path. And then she kind of came back around, but she, art was always around my home um, as much as, you know, especially I think when she realized that she could funnel it all through me (laughs) uh, when I was little. So and I come from Barranquilla in Colombia, which is the birth of magic realism. So it's also something that was, um, I think I was exposed to surrealism before I was exposed to realism almost. Like it was the it was the language that perpetuated art forms around me growing up in a really organic way. So um, well, can we talk can we talk about that? And some magic surrealism you just said. What is I mean, that? I, I'm not the expert in the difference between magic realism and surrealism, but I've always understood it to be more in literature um, and surrealism, a more visual. Although maybe don't quote me on that because there's obviously surrealist writers. But I was raised around these kind of alternative ways of uh, looking at reality that weren't quite, you know, to not quite be content with 
uh, reality as it was. And I think that was like my first introduction with. And that's just because um, of the actual place you're from. That is the sort of themes that were around. Gabriel Garcia Marquez is from Barranquilla. I think oh. he, so th that was the, the style of uh, writing that I was raised around in my home. My mom was always reading me from, from his or other writers of the same movement. And, and it was always very vibrantly colored uh, paintings that were around me. So I think that like color was, has always just been a default. It comes from a very instinctive place because it was ingrained in me. And also in a really basic way, like magic realism as writing or within art was about the kind of everyday, like real life, but then with magical elements. And it's this blurring of real life with with fantasy. And that's right. quite an interesting foundation block if you think about your work, actually. Yeah, like magic is ingrained in the banal or in the sort of mundane, yeah. which I think which has always been like uh, kind of like ex almost expecting it. And it's always kind of been something that draws me to different art forms. Um, so surrealism, I think, was a really natural art form to be drawn to as soon as I was introduced to it. What were you drawing as a kid? Was it similar to the work you're making now? Because there are so many artists that we talk to and the work they were making as a kid is really their style going forward. <laughs> it's expanded, obviously, and, they, and they've matured with it. But what the fundamentals are, the, the kernel of what they were working on became their whole practice. That's so interesting. So uh, something really tragic happened, which is uh, I was put in a in a little art class where the teacher would only allow us to copy other, I mean, I was really, really little. And the only way that we were allowed to make art was to copy these like Hallmark cards, like these stacks that she had. Then in hindsight, I'm like, I bet she was like reselling them because we weren't even allowed to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so for a long time, it was like pushed out of me to do anything but mimicry, you know, as a child. But uh, so I think like, that then I think something happens when something gets like pushed down from you, it kind of just like repels back out somewhere else. And it did, it came, you know, I, I work with every single possible ways of applying paint on a canvas in this moment and like make everything that shouldn't, you know, goes against the rules of like coexistence, coexist together. So I think it's probably somewhere deep in me, this like repressed way of wanting to make work. Yeah. What was your mom's work like? What is your mom's work like? Um, well, actually, now my mom is a film critic. So she's sort of traveled through the... Culture, um, everything in culture. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She was a photographer for a bit. She's made some short films. So it's been more in the sort of time-based medium. But she was always painting when I was little. It was always around me. And you grew up in, in a place called Barranquilla. Is that right? Barranquilla. Okay. In Colombia, and in Columbia. Were, were there like local institutions or galleries or museums that you would you would see or an experience? So, um, not not so much. No, I mean I'm sure there are more now that I'm not aware of. But when I was little, that wasn't how I was. It was actually so. Barranquilla is the birthplace of the carnival, which is the carnival of Colombia, which is the biggest or the second biggest carnival in the world, I think, after Brazil. And I would say that that was my introduction to art in a real way more than anything else I think it was like being surrounded by I didn't under I didn't recognize it as that at the time but I think being surrounded by that amount of like first of all that amount of craft that goes into the making of costumes the making of these kind of like very excessive and overabundant um forms that exist in in a carnival and the it was like my first introduction into like the uncanny like the sense of something being like both 
something that both horrified me and fascinated me at the same time. That something was like really brightly colored, but also kind of speaking to something dark. You know, there's a lot of narratives in the carnival that are quite dark, which is true for all card. I think true for all, all carnivals. Yeah, yeah. How old were you when you saw the carnival for the first time? I don't remember. <laughs> it was that. Like, it was little. It was always yeah, little, little. Uh, yeah, because they can be scary. I mean, I remember seeing things oh, yeah. as a kid and being terrified. It's all the masks and and the performative energy of it all, and this and the noise and everything. But there was something about that that has stuck with you that you've you've managed to kind of um, the essences of that you've put into your practice. The essences of it, yeah. So I think that like I'm always kind of struggling with how to speak about the carnival and my work because I don't really consider it any kind of. Uh, like sort of journalistic approach or anthropological approach to the carnival as this kind of way to speak to it. But the ethos of it, the themes around it have absolutely embedded themselves in my psyche. And that comes out in my visceral responses now to anything. So I think um, just inherently, that's always going to be how I approach that the, the thinking around the grotesque and mockery and forms of resistance and transgression through those modes of existing is absolutely something I root to the carnival. It's almost like there's there's protest and activism within the carnival, even though it's entertainment and it's 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 like people showing off their craft. There is real really moments in there that are you you're saying political and can be used to spread messages and and protest. And that's something that you've we have we have the colours of the carnival when you work, but we also have this underlying sort of um dread. I guess, or something in there that we can't quite put our finger on with your work. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the carnival, there's different sort of narratives of it, different sections. Some of it was pulled from the carnival of Colombia. Um, I think probably Brazil would be really similar and anything else in, in the Americas um, as colonized land would be really similar, which is like co- a collision of things that came from Europe and things that came from um the indigenous communities of the the traditions that were inherent to the land and they kind of collided in they collided in the aesthetics and the performances as they did in real life right like they they tell these narratives of like of like death and and dance over overpowering death there's literally the figure of death and the figure of life and life kills death and it's like a whole you know there's 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 also like a headless man that walks around with like blood dripping and you're like little kids so are just intense. like, no, it's, it's really, it's, it's like so it's Halloween, you know? Yeah. And um, so all of that, I think is like something that has influenced the kind of way that I approach seducing through performance, through color, through um, a kind of choreography almost in the paintings mm. to, to sort of tell like in an almost parasitic way to kind of, serve as an agent of change somehow like to tell you something that you don't quite want to to make you look at something you don't quite want to look at yeah I really like that idea that it kind of shaped the way you saw the world you know through through this creativity that was surrounding you annually or or, you know however many times the carnival would, would take place but also I'm interested in the kind of DIY nature of it all because if you think of all those costumes and how they're so handmade I guess that would have made a big impact the idea that you can create something that theatrical that impactful out of very simple materials even or out of nothing you know it's almost like a kind of magic in itself yeah absolutely and I think that that was that that's always been, you know, I tried to make sculpture for a bit when I was in grad school and I had a really hard time. Yeah, I have a, 
I have a whole secret. What <laughs> is it like? Practice that was, oh, it ranged a lot because uh, I had a really hard time with the engineering aspect of sculpture. Like I, I, w- I was always coming at it from the position of a painter and from the position of trying to discover something through making. And I would get really stuck in the ways of having to just make something stand or something, you know, like actually answering to the the questions that sculpture provides as like, you know, an object in space in a different yeah. way. And, um, but I was very into Eva Hess. So I was looking at a lot of like, you know, the artists that were working with real bodily materials, yes. but I really, yeah, I had a, I had a, some sculptures that were, I was working with resin and latex and silicone and kind I was of hoping that. you tell these things because it, the, <laughs> that, that there's a real fleshy energy that I'm drawn to in your work, yeah. work. and yeah. when you see it on JPEG and again, it's the age old thing that you have to see art in person for it really to make sense. But the surfaces of your work is like stitched flesh at points and there's staining and it feels like you you were talking about latex and Ava Hess's work and everything is that it has this um like hammer horror sort of feel like flesh from Frankenstein's been peeled off and put on that and that is something that I find really enticing about your work and you you tactile you want to touch it that that how did them how did that as a materiality enter your practice then was this from the carnival as well or is this would, would this have come through a different route um i think like it's funny when i think about roots i'm like you know it took like it takes like conversations with a therapist sometimes to figure out like what's the root of the thing <laughs> yeah. you know why do you why do i respond that's to us it? that's why we're here we're your therapy right. you're, you're <laughs> oh, therapy. You therapy. <laughs> <laughs> time to change the name of the podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i it's funny you mentioned frankenstein because I, I sort of understand the thing that I'm drawn to when I collect all of these things that, you know, screenshots and 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 little writing that I'll put on like a post-it or in my, my sketchbook or something. I'll collect all these things that, that fascinate me um, and kind of like spread them out and under try to understand them, try to understand what the threads are between them. And uh, Frankenstein, one scene in the book um, where you know, he builds this monster and then he kind of uh, sees, it sort of like turns the like life on Mm -hmm. in the monster and sees the blood flow through under the flesh. It's like the flesh was just a little bit ever so slightly too thin that he could see like life moving and the horror that that gave, that that's sort of like how he, um, how this um, experiment became a monster. And it's like that, um, that tiny gesture of just like, skin being slightly too tight like body being slightly too large just everything being slightly too much the sort of space between familiar and unfamiliar that happened there was a huge inspiration for me with uh that's like it's definitely come into this work just that small moment in that in that novel but it's it's really that kind of way of sort of collecting from all different sources looking at the way animals engage um, in predatory prey behavior, looking at a lot of different parasites. I'm really interested in the parasite, like thematically and conceptually, and also just aesthetically, all the different kinds and how they behave in nature. Um, What's your favorite parasite? Um, the tapeworm? Such, I like the tapeworm. Such That's a nerd. A <laughs> yeah, it's a tapeworm. It's a, uh, he's, he's a legend. The tapeworm's a legend. Yeah. Bill Harzia is this one that I actually is in my work a lot as like, little baby versions of it and adult versions of it. And it just like, it's a worm like, but it kind of has these like um, visible entrails. 
and so it sort of like moves and as it moves it can be it, sometimes it looks like a face I'm obsessed with this like it's a really embarrassing thing to say out loud, but, but this um, lives this lives within uh, like animals or humans in the gut or where does this where does this parasite exist it's something that can be that um, infects the host through consumption. So they're called like trophically induced parasitism. They, they infect through um, through the nutrition. So you would consume it. And it's a, it's found in like South America and parts of Africa. And I'm not sure where else. Um, I, I really, tr I've tried to not be like so scientific about it, but just like by researching it visually, I've become um, invested in what it is, what it, you know, how to find more of it. <laughs> but it's really been it's in almost all of my paintings at least in one or two ways yeah and, and i love the knowledge that someone's looking at something so sensual and so seductive and so almost ethereal sometimes um or really bodily but uh, it's a parasite it's almost always a parasite <laughs> wow but it's interesting because there is a theme within your work of transformation and that mm -hmm. parasite in itself the way you described it the way it can move and shape and grow and um, there's like a younger version of it even you know what I mean there's like loads of different yeah. iterations yeah. it's almost like that symbolic yeah it's also um the parasite as a as a as a concept as an animal is like an agent of change right like it's right. a it's a thing that like uh infects a host and forces it to change it's sort of a it's a foreigner that arrives as like a way to sort of it sort of threatens to infiltrate a larger body and destroy it from within so there's something really transgressive about it as a concept and um it sort of brings in like narrative like like language around you know imposition and infection and like bad boundaries and i always i go back to this reading uh by this author uh megan milks who wrote an incredible list of ways to uh i think it was like how to write like a parasite and it's um something like that um but an incredible way to think about the parasite as like tr transgressive modes of existing. So, sh so they'll go through like these different ways of um, different parasites that, you know, this one like infects the host by taking over its tongue and becoming its tongue. So, you know, occupy the mouth with new hungers, you know, it's things like that, uh, like different ways of actually like conceptually thinking about the parasite as modes of existing. And if you think of like, you know, we were talking about carnival earlier, but if you're thinking about things like that, like in its very essence, it's the same as art in a way, like like unifying people, bringing people together, edifying, um, evolving, like through the sensuality of art, through the seduction perhaps of an image. Right. You can change the way that people feel, but also bring people together. Because I feel like the core of something like Carnival or even art, there is something about community or like you know, people for a shared uh, view of the world that you might be able to make it a better existence. Right. Yeah. There's a way of like seducing almost from like underneath and, and, or almost, or maybe from like every angle, but this like form of seduction that's like, that's a way to kind of talk about something that is uncomfortable or difficult or maybe like too complex to, to, too dark almost to speak through darkness so we're going to speak about it through color or through excess or through dance mm. or through, you know yes yes yeah that is your work because your work is incredibly seductive and it's a real like visual pleasure it's flamboyant the colors are amazing but it's disarming them knowing that there is a parasite in there but also at first glance you might not realize that they are highly figurative there's there's, there's arms outstretched there's feet pointed limbs like 
pushing or reaching or trying to connect with another limb. These figures that are in there, they're like fragments of figures. Are they images or photographs or is this like, is is this all a memory exercise when you create your work? It's a huge memory exercise, but it, 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 but, but it does, but I do have a tremendous amount of sources and it, they are very, I like to think quite surprising <laughs> and all of them come together in this. It's, it's hard to name a, a singular way of people often ask me how I start a work and it's, it's, it's always, it always starts in a sketch, but it's, it can be quite different each time. I think, I think of points of tension. I think that's where I really start is yes. like a city. Sometimes it's a singular action or sometimes Sometimes I saw something in a movie. I, I, film is really uh, impactful to me. And I saw maybe a scene in a movie where, where there was a pressure point and I'm like, that, that, it stayed with me. So then I'll draw it a bunch of times and then it'll either become something, it'll become the beginning of, of a larger painting or it'll come in like much later sometimes as this like way to kind of realize something um, in a work. But sometimes the sketch starts with just purely formal, you know, very much about composition. And then uh, the figuration will come in. But figuration is very much a part of thinking through this work. It's usually where sometimes I think there's a lot of bodies in the work, but they're not always human. Sometimes they're bodies that become real estate for other bodies. Sometimes it's uh, not quite the body might just serve as a as a joint to connect two forms that are not bodies. So it's really like breaking apart and putting back together what it means to take up space and have a body in the world and who gets that privilege and who gets to like uh, do it in an uncontained fashion and, you know, how does spilling out of a container better define, I don't know, just like these really like abstract questions about what it means to have a body. No, I I think it's, you've described it as having like a leaky identity as well. Mm -hmm. This feels like an identity that doesn't feel fixed and and queerness for you is a is a major theme in your practice as something that you are exploring and all almost you've described it as the paintings are mocking binaries it's like this this ability to talk about identity and politics gender politics uh queerness in a really abstract way it's so beautiful i think it's um you know i like to think of mocking binaries like including the binaries of good and evil, right? Like binaries within religion, binaries. So it's like the concept of a binary as anything being fixed is, you know, to mock it, to question it, to challenge it is is a queer experience. But I think it's a universal problem, right? Um, Outside of uh, what we consider queerness. I think like that's my entry point into understanding what it means to, to be human and to have the conditions of being human. The The desire, I think like a very something that I consider a very queer experience, but is also quite universal is the idea of like desire and longing without resolve. Well, that's interesting. So the paintings aren't resolved. Sorry to jump in there. They never feel resolved for you. They're never, I mean, there's no way to follow a singular path without it being rerouted. You you know, you, you, you have this like almost um, athletic, I have this almost like athletic way of like rerouting things in the painting that will never quite resolve something. And I think a lot about like uh, resolution in different ways, resolution in, in, in terms of image, because image is a huge part of, I think about relating to the world through image. And so never quite, you know, I'm a, I'm a tactile, now I'm like going all over the place. Uh, I'm a person that like 
understands the world through touch and through tactility, but I also relate very much to it through image. I'm not sitting here kind of touching the parasite. It's all through image. So how does that kind of become this desire and longing without resolve? Because I never, you know, I'm always, there's always a disruption from the lack of complete resolution through image. And so all of these conceptual questions become, um, become, visual problems that I like to create for a viewer too. You can't quite follow a singular body in the work because it's never going to finish. It's never even, you're like, that's definitely a human because that's a human finger, but then it never quite finishes human. And it was never, maybe it was never human to begin with. And that hand is actually a cartoon. And so then it's actually just line. And so there's all these questions of, you know, making something so elastic that it undoes itself. I think, I think it, for me it's the performative nature of your work and that there's this constant movement you're talking about switching and changing up and a lot of uh, like abstract paintings that i spend time with you find yourself in moments of pause within the work i like to hang out in a certain area i like that color i can chill there i can enjoy them that that surface there that that, that brush stroke with your work it's an enjoyable experience but you can never quite pause you're always you're always darting around, and I think that's your use of color, which I'd love to get onto and talk about. But I think it's the materiality. But I think it's also this this energy that is that you've harnessed that you're able to put into a painterly surface. Yeah, I think it's um. Uh, I always think of the the painting as this kind of you know these paintings deal with power, right? They they speak to themes of power, oppressive power, and and um and internal sort of uh, power dynamics uh, in the private and the public. So there's a lot of themes around that. And I think like uh, the relationship that I have to the way I make the painting deals very much with my um, agency as an artist and my kind of trying to um, command a material that doesn't quite want to respond the way I want it. So there's this like act of like, there's this kind of power dynamic dance yeah like a dance yeah like a like a dance or like a power play or or you know something where there's like the material wants to respond to gravity and i'm trying to kind of push it so there's this really bodily way of making the work and i like to i like to say it sort of uses when i work in the scale that i love to work at which is large it uses all my joints it uses uh my wrist my elbow and my shoulder to make a full gesture sometimes and uh so it's a way to kind of dart you from one side to the other uh in this yeah like this really like athletic fashion sometimes and you work on the wall uh, i go back and forth depending on the size of the painting if it's because I, I have to work on panel when i work with um some of the material with the wax and some of the materials i work with so so it's hard to put it it's hard to like lift it on my own and so that will that alone will shift the amount of time i spend like you know, working, um, but there's a lot of pores that happen that are, that are fundamental to this work. And so at the very least, the paintings will start on the ground and then they go on the wall. Or, or for a pour of paint, for a pour of whatever the material is. Yeah, I'm usually pouring paint um, to start the works. Yeah. Is the floor That's... like messy? Does it go everywhere? Or do you, what do you put down? How do you protect oh, yeah. all that? Yeah. I don't. I don't. I, I've tried so many times and then I'm, I've realized that just surrendering to the fact that like I will probably lose part of my security de- deposit that's a that's a material <laughs> cost in the work <laughs> because uh yeah I can't be thinking about that it's so fast I'm working I'm fighting against water water tension and uh you know like 
I'm fighting against gravity. Like I can't be thinking about protecting a floor. And because yeah. of the kind of abstract nature of the work, even though it has all these figurative elements, often when I've looked at the work, I see things that trigger some memory to me from something else. And it, I, I know that films are big, uh, plays a big role and there's numerous artists that have kind of impacted you. But I also read that it was the drama of Baroque painting. I really liked that 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 very specific description, like the drama of Baroque. I loved that. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, I love thinking about it as like the melodrama of the Baroque, right? Like the, the, I look to a lot of Rubens paintings and the way that they, you know, the way he used bodies to, uh, like many, you know, many bodies to describe uh, almost a singular, almost a singular form and the way sort of uh, things ascended and descended. And it was always through the kind of, uh, like the the turn of a muscle and the turn of a arm and nothing quite it, it it did feel like you could very easily like kind of dissolve that uh those engagements and in, in the work into um like i guess twist and turn them into something else which i which was always just like a desire i had with looking at that work but um yeah it's the sort of the highest form of you know if you think of like a like folklore in a carnival it's almost like low art right like people you know there's a, a desire to not take it seriously as an art form. And then you think, and you think about the sort of Baroque painting and the Baroque architecture and the sort of history of the Baroque as like high form of drama, but they're both kind of doing similar things. So having them as like influences that coexist feels like exciting and it feels transgressive. It feels like something that it's almost like bringing bringing high art low to the ground so you can like touch it and poke it and kind of make fun of it. And yeah, just pervert it a little bit. <laughs> I like that word. Uh, and also then Helen Frankenthaler and Francis Bacon, you've like had a splice. People, people have compared you to kind of pulling from both of those uh, art heroes of yours as well. Are they art heroes, those two? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've never really been one to have like singular art heroes. And I've thought about it a lot because I get this question often. I think it's almost like finding ways to make these things again, like coexist or these, these, um, these uh, influences coexist and intersect. And, but yeah, the, the sort of horror of Francis Bacon is absolutely yeah. a huge, you know, the, the, the bodiliness of, of a Frankenthaler painting, the, the absolute um, audacity of them, I think is really exciting to me. And, um, Eva Hess is a is a huge one for me and what she was able to do in a short time with the sort of like quote like offensiveness of the body and bring that into paint into abstraction in a way that was I think like had never quite been seen we used to I, I, some friends of mine in grad school were just we would just constantly say like Eva Hess is God I think we put that on a friend's birthday cake one time like Eva Hess <laughs> is God like there was just something about when I was in grad school, all of us were talking about Eva Hess, even the fact that those works are disintegrating. And there's something mm -hmm. so powerful in that, too, that has always been a huge. Yeah, she's and then uh, a big one for me has been Linda Benglis for similar reasons. And actually, there's uh, some Linda Benglis wax pieces. The Yale Gallery had two of them, and I would just sit in front of them for hours. Like, how did she do this? And I think that is what started me working with wax like trying to yeah. figure out how Linda Benglis did that. And I think I just like did it, a, did a whole different thing and it went its own path. But um, this is, this is beeswax. That's, that's a material that you use. Is that something that will, 
disintegrate over time, like Eva Hess's work, or is that quite a solid material once you've put it into a painting? Um, I mean, I don't really know exactly. I haven't seen this treatment of... I'm working with encaustic and beeswax, and I think encaustic has been around since, you know, you see the, the Egyptian portraits in encaustic, like the ancient Egyptian oh, ones. So I think in, there, the longevity of this is, is, I think, is like a question for sure. Um, but... I haven't seen this treatment, so I'm sort of here with everybody else. Trying yeah, to I mean, I, I've never, I've never seen it before, and it's it's a yeah. very unique pictorial language that you have, and and you have like um, oil and acrylic, but then there's this beeswax in there, and and you've said that I want to have as many different ways as possible of applying paint, and you were saying about the pour, and then at one point you have to go up. So what what is the process of your paintings, or is this like a top secret thing that no one should know about? <laughs> I, it probably should be top secret, but I don't know. I'm not very good with secrets. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I usually, I think a big thing that, that makes these works exciting is that in the, in the making of them is that I actually prime the canvas differently according to an original drawing. So, um, so there is a kind of, um, blueprint that I start with and then that allows for, I think the first real, uh, stage of painting in the work is when I do these pores with acrylic where um, where and I kind of tilt the canvas in different ways to kind of make the make the water and the acrylic kind of travel throughout and it uh, completely shifts the the original plan it completely it sets the it sets the terms that are then going to have to follow for the rest of the painting that are very much um, I think that's a huge place where I start to be, um, where I start this kind of power play with the painting. I'm trying to mm -hmm. control something I can't quite control. And um, and if I ever try to fake it, it never quite comes out. It has to be a really organic kind of process-based aspect of, of the painting. Um, How would you fake it then? In what way have you you've tried? Like if I try to move the, if I try to move it in the direction I wanted it to move, it's not gonna, it's gonna, you're gonna be able to tell that this, it won't have that sort of, low moving travel of pigment that's what I'm after so the the pigment travels throughout the painting with the water and adheres to the different differently treated surfaces throughout um and that's glacial is, isn't it like a glacial drift exactly yeah, exactly nice. like a glacial that's a really good way to put it and because of that because of the speed of that travel and the way that it adheres differently it creates this kind of illusion that I'm really like one of the artists I look to a lot is Charlene von Heil. She has this like completely indecipherable way of uh, painting. You can't quite understand the, the the sequence of events. And, and that's, I think she gets a lot of pleasure in that. I get a lot of pleasure in that. So I think that this, some of that probably happens in this stage. And then it's about responding to the decisions that the, that the, you know, gravity made at the beginning and that I was fighting against. And it's responding to those uh, gestures and the sort of going back and forth between an original sketch and the, the decisions that process makes as you, as you kind of get through a work like this with this many intricacies. Um, it's, a, it's a place of real strategy in the making of the painting, which I enjoy. I can never really like surrender to this painting. It's always tumultuous. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What was your journey like to today? Because obviously you've you, you've become incredibly successful. Um, you know, you're represented by international galleries. You're about to have a really big museum show, which we can talk about in a second. But what was your kind of student years like and and the kind of, you know, becoming Ilana Savdi? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I love that way of putting it too. The diva in me is just loving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think it's, um, uh, I went through a lot of different mediums. I was always a painter, always a painter, always drawing. And, and I tried really hard to be anything, but, you know, I tried to, uh, you know, I tried to have like a, like a legitimate job with like legitimate career paths. And, you know, I graduated from, RISD in 2008, which was the recession, you know, peak recession year. And so I was like anything to get a job, like anywhere, you know. And so I taught myself graphic design and I, I pretended like I was designing all these websites for all these major things and would submit them as like portfolio. I was trying anything. I worked in photography for a while and uh, I ended up for a little bit doing retouching for like within the beauty industry, retouching stock photos or retouching. Um, I worked at like Maybelline. I worked at, you know, different like beauty companies. And then a lot of that ended up becoming just source material for painting <laughs> after work. Like I, was, I always had a studio. I would kind of bring a lot of that back. So a lot for a long time, the paintings would start from, from digital sketches because I was kind of, I think it was the rage that I felt in retouching like a model mm-hmm. <laughs> to look like this idea of sort of stock or norm or perfection or something where trying to create something that was so unnatural and that was supposed to be this kind of utopia, right? Um, the desire to pervert that with the same tools that I was supposed to be using to perfect it, like started to drive a lot of the work. So I started to make these paintings that were based on stock photos that had been completely distorted and, you know, d- disrupted with color, disrupted with the you know the digital tools that were used to create them in the first place and liquefying them all and um and I think this was a you know I've just described really quickly like a course of sort of eight years but that was the work that I ended up using to apply to Yale and went to grad school um with that body of work and then when I was in grad school it was the sort of very big distance between the stock photography stage and the final painting that didn't quite there was like something really missing in that intermediary state which is unraveling of the body and I would realize that that interest was getting lost um that fascination was getting lost and I started to play with materials that felt like they were more reminiscent of the body but also had this kind of toxicity to them and that's where like resin and latex and silicone and that whole which led me to the sort of k-hole of like you know feminist art history and um so 
I think in grad school, I really kind of unraveled all of that. And it was really difficult. It was a really difficult time for me because I was failing a lot. I was failing a lot, a lot, a lot with this work. And it was always public. I was failing in front of like some, you know, of my like heroes, <laughs> that would, you know, people that would, I was destroyed in crits in grad school in a very public way. And I remember someone was like, you're like, that we had like superlatives at the end and someone was like most likely to rise from the ashes because they would just like tear me to shreds. And then I would always come back with a whole new body of work, you know, three months later for the next crit. And it was really tough, but it forced me to, yeah, to, to dissect it all, to break it all open. It was a really incredible experience in the end. Um, reborn over and over again. <laughs> yeah, basically. And all of that. that, all of that is in this work. Every single stupid decision I made in the studio every single time that like I did something then someone you know and you're an exposed nerve the entire time you're in grad school so if someone like walks by and doesn't linger long enough in front of one piece you're like well mm. that piece is trash then mm. you know and you're so vulnerable and then but collecting all of those failures and really trying to understand them is what fundamentally led to this work it really is like ashes though isn't it it's like all mm -hmm. of these kind of burnt remains in a way and it, yeah. it's interesting as well like um there's a big phenomenon at the moment of people because you know like things happen in not trends but like there's a kind of consensus that happens especially within art or philosophy first before everyone else catches on and at the moment I've noticed about three exhibitions on the idea of the unruly body and also books coming out now even by friends of ours like Emma Dabry's written one and there's a show at the Welcome Collection in London so this mm -hmm. idea of the unruly it also seems like your work is really connected to that yeah, I think very much about the sort of container that some of us feel like we've been forced in and like lately continue to be further forced into and 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 spilling out and leaking out of the container is kind of the only way to define it. You know, it's the only way to really understand it when you touch all of its edges. And so to make something that's supposed to be um, impenetrable, like porous, I think is, yeah, it feels like a transgressive act. It feels like something that um, that you're not you're not supposed to do you're not supposed to be here you're not supposed to say these things you're not supposed to speak this way you're not <laughs> you're not supposed to do any of this you're yeah. you're you're fundamentally by even making art you're not you know you're doing something transgressive so it's just leaning into that I think is really important for me it's also the idea of correction though because like if you think of all those images you were manipulating for different beauty brands to make the perfect image it's like this idea that everything else is somehow not valid and incorrect you know, that, that right. idea of correction, I just can't bear it. Like a Tipex pen over humanity. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, but that's the thing. It's, a, it's the unbearable. It, it's the thing that, um, I always think about it like in horror films when like, if you ignore the monster, the monster is going to get really, really, really big, you know, and eventually you won't be able to ignore it. This blob is going to take over the town, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what's happened. That's what happened in, that's what's happened to every, you know, that's what happens with COVID, it's happened with the AIDS crisis. Like you can't, you can't ignore the thing that demands your attention. And I think that's true for many of us that aren't supposed to exist, you know? Mm. Do, you, do you see your work as a, a political act or activism or a Trojan horse in some ways? You, there's a message encoded in there that people don't realize that they're actually looking at. Yeah, I would like to think of it a bit more as a Trojan horse. I think I feel weary of talking about my work in act in the sense of activism because I think I would insult many <laughs> activists who, you know, they're paintings that are being sold to 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I challenge that a lot. I have a lot of uh, conflicting feelings about what it means to make make more objects in a world that doesn't need more objects and to, you know, yeah, I don't know. I have a, you know, the, to make objects out of wax, which means they have to be, uh, they have to be like um, climate controlled. And so, you know, I'm like, I, I contradict. And I, if I think about it too much, it makes me not want to make work. So I can't think about it too much, wow. but, but it is really important to me that I'm, I am a political person and I am a politicized person. So it is impossible for them not to be political works because yeah. I, I, I can't speak to say, you know, I'm, I think I make the most recent paintings I made, I made in the past four months. And we saw in the past four months, like the most horrific um, attack that we've seen in a long time in this like sort of lockstep way in this country against people that are me and my people um, among just like, you know, we've been seeing this for years. And I think it's just like, I'm having this kind of, visceral response I think this work is like a dissection of my own visceral response to these things that are happening yeah in our time yeah I I also just really strongly feel that art is such an important space you know even like if you have an exhibition of paintings it creates this kind of space that can change everyday realities for people who see Mm -hmm. the work and that's what I think so important and I was reading yesterday um Xavier Dolan's really beautiful text that he did actually on Instagram but he was talking about Mm -hmm. giving up making films and giving up I think uh acting he might you know direct series perhaps but it sounds like only because he's already committed to them but it sounds like he literally after 15 years wants to just stop because he wants to focus more his energies on perhaps activism that's kind of subtly what it seemed to say like maybe even eco-activism I wasn't totally clear but I really respected Mm -hmm. what he was saying but at the same time I was like I was like yeah but all those things he made they've sort of like we said before unified edified created a space for lots of people in small towns where there's no one else like them to feel seen and and to empower those people and that's what I think the power of art is I actually just wrote a text for this this annual in the UK called Walpole but I was talking about how art like illuminates the path ahead you know what I mean and like it's not Mm -hmm. only reflecting it's not I I described it as a bellwether the art's like a bellwether for where society is but the truth is it's actually more about where we're heading to and that and 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 I think we collectively as art lovers as artists as filmmakers as whoever we are creatively even makeup artists whatever like I just feel like all of those people are somehow trying to create this better reality yeah there's there's I think um which is why I said if I think about it too much I have to stop thinking about it because there is something (laughs) you know you cannot you can't undo anything in your head before you start it so it's there is such a thing I think is like as overthinking something and and but at the end of the day, I'm in my studio by myself as an exposed nervous system. And from that, I make work. And there is, I, I am of the belief that that undoubtedly will, or at least like in the hopes that when this work goes up on a wall and someone's standing in front of it, that they become an exposed nervous system. And there's this kind of space of vulnerability of connection that, um, that uh, I don't know, this kind of connectivity that I think you don't, um, that I think we need. And whether that is about pushing something forward or that is about like, you know, taking someone out of a space of ambivalence, I think is really fundamentally where the desire comes from maybe, or, or having the ability to just having the ability to be vulnerable in a time where we, we are, we're just so fatigued that we can't access that vulnerability as much. So 
the studio becomes a, an enclosed space in which I can be in that state of vulnerability. And then the paintings are sort of this uh, register of that. Do, do you feel vulnerable in front of the paintings when the exhibition is on? Do you feel exposed by them? Oh, absolutely. Do you? I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I've put up my own naked body everywhere and everyone's sitting there. Yeah, it's extremely vulnerable. It's extremely raw. And, and I think the fear is to ever get to a place where that stops being true. You will always search to be uncomfortable with your work mm -hmm. out there in the world. And that, that for you is something that would drive you to keep making the work. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's really important to be in the position where you can fail publicly, where that is, that you're, it, it won't kill you. You won't die. You will, you know, That's because hopefully, you've, been, yeah, hopefully. you've been critiqued so many times that you're like, I've been there. I know what this is. Go on in do it, and I'll just come <laughs> yeah. back with something else. I'm all right. <laughs> like hit me. Like it already happened in, in a, you know, the gladiator pit of grad school. No, I mean, I think it's, I, I strongly believe that from failure, um, like failure and shame are really important kind of places of uh, it's like I feel like failure is a really important space for resistance to to happen for something for growth to happen to like arrive at a kind of divinity almost like I think it's a really queer experience to to exist in the world from a place of failure and I think there's like a whole field of, there's or I know there's like a whole field of study around the queer art of failure because um it's a space where, you know, you've already kind of fundamentally failed from the, yes. from the get-go. You failed. So You're from there... You're inconvenient, aren't you, from the start? You're like... You've been, yeah. you, exactly. You, you enter into the world inconveniently. And so everything else from there, you know, doesn't have to adhere to anything predetermined because you've already failed at the first predetermined thing. So I think that that's, that's how I kind of enter into the idea. But I think it is, again, universal... Um, it's a it's a really important space that leads to like interrogation and it leads to um, to evolution and change and tra transformation. How long does a painting take? Um, so I have to work on many of them simultaneously. Oh, because, you do. You work on multiple. Yeah, things. because the there's a lot of I have to sort of respond to different drying times. Uh, there's a lot of masking out of different areas of the work and layering, and so. But I would say I it would take me about a month to make a painting but i can make about two or three in a month so um if i work on them simultaneously so it's it depends on how much sleep i want to get how many weekends i want to take <laughs> got it got it yeah so we have got uh, an exhibition that's just been announced that's opening for you called radical contractions which will be at the whitney museum of art in new york which is one of my most favorite museums in the world but also the space within there is a free space for the public to enter. Most of the Whitney, you have to get a ticket. It's ticketed. You have to have membership. Uh, but you can go to the gift shop and you can go to this lobby gallery, which is, again, one of my most favorite spaces. I discovered Toyino Giudatola there. Salman Tor, mm. who's been on Talk Art, had an exhibition there. This is this is a career-changing uh, space and a real big moment for you. It, it's, it's a space dedicated to showcasing new work from emerging American artists. That's a lot of pressure. That's very exciting. How are you feeling about that? And how did that all come about for you? Congratulations, um, by the way. It's just like amazing. Thank you. I, I'm very, I'm really excited about it. I've been, uh, I think the Whitney as an institution has been fundamental to my, you know, education as an artist. And so it's obviously, it's a dream. And I, I've also discovered artists from that space. That's one of my favorite 
galleries of any of the museums it has like it sort of invites this kind of singular move and I think like I love watching how people respond to it so um yeah it came about because Marcela Guerrero who's the curator, one of the two curators of this show, the other curator is Angie um, Arbelaez, who's, I think this might be her second show at the museum. So I, it's a, it's been a really exciting process to work with both of them. And Marcella was, I met Marcella when she acquired one of my works from the show I had at Michael Cohn Gallery. Um, this was in 2021, Occupy the in, Mouth, I think that was called, yeah. Yes, Occupy the, the Mouth. Which the collection, is, yes, great. That's now part of the collection that actually came from that, um, with that piece of writing about the parasite that I was telling you about, ah, Occupy the Mouth with the New tongue. Hungers. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, it was one of my favorite pieces. I mean, I was so excited that that was going to the Whitney. I didn't even believe it was real. I just was telling them the other day, I did not believe it was real until it went through every single acquisition meeting it had to go through. And until the check was in my hand, this is a very Jewish thing about me, until the check was in my hand, <laughs> I didn't believe that this was real. I, I wouldn't celebrate it. I wouldn't tell anyone nothing. Um, but yeah, after that, from that, um, that's how I met Marcella. And then she came to me a few months ago. Um, and I think that that space is reserved for shows that have like, a you know, I think it takes many years for a museum to plan a show. So they kind of have reserved that gallery for shows that are more contemporary. So they, I think that's why they kind of feel so vibrant with every show. She approached me a few months ago and I originally we started with the idea of taking some loans for the show. And then as I started oh, wow. working on, yeah, it was too short of a timeline to make a whole new show. But then as I started working on the paintings, I was like, no, I'm going to make a whole new show. I'm make a whole new show. <laughs> they just started pouring out of me. There was a lot that I wanted to say. I didn't want, I didn't want to split this show up. And there was a lot of works that I had in my in my mind that I was like, if I just if I just kind of tuck myself into the studio and really, really push it, I think I can do it. And we'll see. I think I did it, but we'll see. How many works are there going to be in the show? And it's, this is paper as well as paintings. Yes. So a huge part of this practice, a fundamental part of this practice is the works on paper, um, which we didn't really talk about that much, but they are... I see them as a very fundamental sort of alphabet that builds the language to this work. But these work. aren't and sketches in your sketchbook. These are actual separate from... No, they're separate. So from the original rough sketch, I'll usually go to a work on paper uh, that's monochromatic. It's it's um, it's just pen and, and acrylic and water. And I just... That's where I kind of make a lot of the decisions that are around how one form connects to the next, like thinking about mark making, thinking about gesture and this really kind of small scale... You know, I'm not really considering color. And and I think before it gets to any kind of real finished state, when I kind of have a real understanding of what are the fundamental forms that are going to guide the painting, I'll take a photo of it quite roughly and put it on Photoshop. And then that becomes where I sketch the painting is on Photoshop. That's where I bring in some of the source imagery that becomes a collage element in the work and then these works on paper will get finished separately as their own piece. And I think that it allows for the painting to also sometimes become a sketch for the work on paper, where I then some of the things that happen in process-based decisions in the painting will inform some of the decisions I make to finish the work on paper. So they aren't sketches for the paintings, but they do have this kind of interplay with the work. And um, I don't think I've yet had a show of these paintings that doesn't also have works on paper in the show. Mm -hmm. And how I, many paintings and how many works on paper will you have? Do you know? 
So I have seven works on paper. They're small um, and they're going to introduce the show. So you kind of, you know, have to earn the paintings. Um, and then I have six 10 foot paintings in the show. It's going to be quite an excessive, a very Flam abundant. Flamboyant. That's going flamboyant. to be hot color everywhere. I keep thinking you, you either are going to love the show or you're going to hate the show. But there's no ambivalence here. You can't have no opinion <laughs> and yeah I was thinking very much of this kind of like almost cathedral like way of mm. of presenting you know these kind of large windows or large kind of frescoes or something really kind of excessive and tumultuous and like kind of being surrounded by them but it also um, sounds like the urgency to make them that need that you were talking about where you were suddenly like actually I've got to make this that would lend itself I imagine to having them installed that way Yes. Yeah. I think when I saw, when I saw them and I saw the first, it was just going to be three of these large ones. And when I saw them together, I realized they, they really need to, they really need to live together. And it's a small gallery. It's a gallery that calls, like I said, for a really singular move. And I think that this way of putting these works in um, is, a, is kind of, it feels like a kind of singular move. And I've never had uh, the opportunity to make a show where the works were all the same scale. So you're not sort of, you, mm. you have the desire to look at them kind of together. And, and I think rather than kind of contending with each of them at one, like singularly, you want to kind of consume them together and then kind of get lost in them. And it becomes more about the moments within each work. You know, you, it's hard to sort of step that far back from these large works in a smaller space. And I, so I kind of like that. I think that's an exciting new way to look at this work that I haven't had the opportunity to do yet. When does the show open? It opens on the 14th of July. Whoa. Next, so that all the paintings have left, have left the studio. They're all there now, right? When do you start installing? They're all, well, I'm in New York, so they didn't really need to be like storing the work. So they're all still here, but all packed oh. up and they're getting to the museum on Monday and they're getting installed that same day. And we start next week. Yeah. I going to ask if oh, you're we'll nervous, see. but I'm, I'm sure you're probably looking forward to feeling anxious because that's a feeling that you want around the work <laughs> and that I'm experience. nervous. Yeah, I'm very nervous, but I'm also, yeah, I'm excited and I'm, I'm mostly nervous about keeping the, when I have the paintings in my studio, there's still these like living bodies that I can affect at any moment. Mm -hmm. um, I need them out of the studio so that they can become art, so they can become objects in the world that are someone else's responsibility. That's really interesting. Um, so when they're in the studio, you don't see them as as art yet until they've no. Been I I misspoke. No, no, I, I see them as art, but I don't see them as as objects in the world yet. They're still just my own. You know, I can kind of. But they belong to you, I guess. And once they're out in the world, they're no longer yours. They're the world's. Yeah, I'm not precious with them when they're in the studio. I'm like, you know, I, I'm constantly poking and prodding at them and not handling them with white gloves. Like I need someone handling them with white gloves so that they can, so I need them to leave. <laughs> How does yeah. it feel like to sell, because you're, you're a very in-demand artist, your work, your shows sell out. What does that feel like to have that sort of pressure, to have to be really kind of hot and for people to be really like clamoring to get works by you? It's terrifying. Yeah, because I don't, I think I have um, a very, I, I always call it a very Jewish anxiety that my mother ingrained in me to never, you, you, you never quite experience joy. <laughs> you never quite let it, <laughs> you're, you're never quite going to let, as soon as something exciting is going on, you're like, well, but it's, you know, 
everything that goes up must come down, you know, like <laughs> you have that. Um, so I have me and my therapist speak a lot about enjoy the moment and that kind of thing. No, but I think the pressure is, I love the ability to connect with people through the work. And I, and I, and I have this huge privilege to be able to do that in this moment. And I'm trying to take it to appreciate it, take advantage of it. And, and at the same time, leave it out of the studio, like any kind of demand, any kind of request. I have, um, the first thing I did when I sold the first show was hire a part-time studio manager who's my absolute favorite person in the world. So she is the one that communicates with people via email so that I'm not, I don't have other people's voices in my head when I'm in the studio. And it's very much about still staying in that space of discomfort, having the ability to make decisions that aren't impacted by the market, like not really, you know, people are always trying to, I see people trying to like slowly kind of embed little worms in your head about competition with other artists and, you know, create the little drama that people want to, yeah, to, to try to get, um, you know, this person sold for this much. And like, you know, now at, in auction, they're not selling for as much as they were selling before. So, uh, and I'm, uh, that doesn't, none of that, none of that is in the studio. None of that is allowed to enter into the thinking around this work. And because, because of the fact that at the end of the day, when these works go up on a wall, they are, they feel like my, my naked body on a wall. So I have to honor that feeling and not, not cut it up into little pieces and sell them for the highest bidder, you know? Yeah. Just with that, you have to think about legacy and you have to think about the longevity. And if you really hear all those little parasites getting in your ear, these worms, it keeps you just, on the daily with the practice doesn't it I guess instead of thinking about like the future because you're going to paint for the rest of your life obviously right I don't want to be sitting in the studio strategizing my career I want to be sitting in the studio making paintings and thinking about those paintings and then block out time to strategize career stuff because obviously you have to because the, the idea is how do I get to keep making paintings for the rest of my life and but not really having you know there's a lot of you know how the art market kind of is and how it is different from what it was before with contemporary artists and the speed with which people get like chewed up and spat out. And there's so much of that. And you see it with like, you know, certain identities that are getting kind of uh, exploited sometimes. And, you know, the the language that people want to just like force upon you so that you can fit a certain trend. And so staying really vigilant about all of that is really important to me because it's not it's not something I want to participate in. I see the the longevity, you know, if my body allows it, I'd like to stay doing this for a long time. So if you, if you keep the market per se out of the studio, what do you allow in the studio? Do, do you play music? Do you have snacks? Like what, what, what is your daily experience? I have lots of snacks. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's Nalana's snack of choice? Uh, lately it's been Twizzlers. Don't, I don't know if this should yeah. be on the <laughs> It's so embarrassing. Um, no, I have, um, I, I actually recently uh, I've been, because there's so much strategy that happens in these paintings that I never quite get to just like surrender to them. And it's never, it's, there's not a lot of this painting that's, um, that's uh, meditative or anything. It's really quite, you have to be quite present. So the only thing that really works to keep my ADHD in check is having like a TV show playing in the background at all times. Something I've already seen that I don't really have to focus on, but when it's an audiobook or, or if it's a podcast where I'm actually like invested in what I'm listening to, it kind of takes me away from the painting. So um, 
I've had to reserve those for cert only certain areas of the painting that are gonna, you know, and so only in some paintings am I able to do that. But mostly it's like a TV show or what? What cartoons did silent. you watch growing up? Because it feels like there's a lot of a Nickelodeon energy in your work. Rocco's Modern Life, Ren and Stimpy. Ren and Stimpy. Love Ren and Stimpy. There's so much oh, Ren yeah. and Stimpy, like them extreme close-ups of like yeah a ball sack or something when you feel like that noise. It's like. That that because I feel like we're the horrifying. same. I'm eighty one. I think you're eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're like nineties cartoon babies. Absolutely. Rugrats. I think it's all. I I've actually literally painted Ren and Ren and Stimpy into these paintings a few times. So it's they're oh, they, they are. Obsessed. I'm a huge fan of. I think the cartoons are another thing that was just ingrained in me. I wasn't trying to deep deep dive research like you know high research academic level of a cartoon of the cartoon strategies, but just like what it means to to use line to like just like three or four gestures to imply something extremely grotesque about a, an exaggeration of the body what does it mean for something to never quite die but always almost die, explode like you know be really elastic like be pulled apart by you know an anvil that like you know whatever there's always something and in the most recent work i've been thinking a lot about the kind of portals of cartoons the way the way holes exist in cartoons and they become portals and and ways to move through space the way you know a tunnel gets painted on a rock and then mm. all of a sudden like one can go through it but the other one can't the you know these like goes really through yeah 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 so they're just really yeah and i yeah definitely growing up and with like I, I saw this documentary about nickelodeon a couple years ago that talked about how at the time they really it was so new that they were just letting the the animators go nuts like they didn't really let them they didn't really control what they were doing so much so they like this is like what happens when artists take control of, all of the decisions and they really impact it and they embedded themselves in our psyche and yes so we definitely respond to grotesque silliness that's so interesting that Ren and Stimpy is a huge element of your practice because I'm obsessed mm -hmm. with Ren and Stimpy growing up I had like all the yeah. Marvel comics I was obsessed with the cartoon I had the figures the toys everything yeah and, and i can absolutely see that in your work now which makes me love it even more that's so cool oh yeah the the way like the the casual way that they just like will open up their chest to reveal the inside it's just like open up their flesh reveals the inside of their body it's just like really casual grotesque like really casual uh discomfort yeah that has the absolute and i and i love colliding that with you know, like a soutine level meat, right? Like that mm. kind of both both of those ways of of considering the body is are simultaneously feel really interesting and wrong, you know, like they're not supposed to coexist. So it's the power of being able to make them live in the same world is interesting. I love that. Well we're gonna get on to final questions now, Alana. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for your honesty and clarity with how to talk about your work and your practice it's it's been incredible so thank you the first question we have is if you could do an art heist you could have any work of art in the world for yourself what would it be and why and i want to ask if you do trades with artists in bushwick is this something that you because there's a real art community do you ever do swapsies with other artists oh yeah definitely i do i do trades i haven't had a lot of work to trade recently but it's something I'm actually blocking out time to make some works to trade because I did a lot of that in grad school and and so my home is full of um but it's actually funny because I knew this art heist question was going to come 
And so I was talking about it last night with a friend and we found ourselves like being like, well, you know, it has to fit in like the apartment in New York. So we were like strategizing as if it was like, we were like <laughs> overcoming the logistics of how to get this piece. Like of course, on plane it's very to New serious. York. It's very, it's, very it's, serious. <laughs> so I guess I have like the one answer, which is pretty like my kind of basic, basic goth girl coming through, but uh, Saturn, Goya, Saturn devouring his son, I think is just, I could, I could look at that horror show forever um or the witch's sabbath i think is another one that that has a the more eeriness of all all his all his kind of that the whole series of like the witches and the the paintings around i think it was like dealing with like the the, the like look thinking about times of war through that but really it's it goes always back to that you know saturn devouring sun it's really horse horrific so i'd have to go to madrid and figure out how to get it on a plane and bring it back but um but you've seen, <laughs> and you've then seen the, in front of it in, in the flesh you've been in front when of i it. was very young when i was very young but um i didn't understand it back then so i would say no it doesn't count um and then the the one that wouldn't have to adhere to the logistics is of course uh, eva hess it's, i think it's her last piece that she ever made which was these uh, worm-like sculptures that are kind of like these sort of life-size worms that are both like sitting on the ground and also suspended from the ceiling and they kind of like they're I think they're fiberglass and some tubes or something and they're like arranged almost as if it's like a shrine or like a coven about to start a spell or something I love that piece so much it doesn't have a title so I didn't you know I think a lot of her works don't have titles but I do think it is the last piece she ever made um, I think about that piece all the time I would well, love they feel to like just... parasites, I guess, in some way. They absolutely, right? yeah, they feel like parasites. There must be a better way to explain what I just explained, but that's sort of the only way oh, that I've been able to describe them. Love. Well, people listening can seek seek out images. Um, and the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? Um, so I think the color that I use the most in this work is this sort of fluorescent pink uh, acrylic, actually, that... Um, when I do the pores of the uh, at the beginning, which end up being so very often being the sort of first layer of the work, hmm. that fluorescent pink shows this is really like acidic, kind of sickly fluorescent, and it gives this like unnatural glow to a lot of um, these moments that are otherwise that would that are even even if they're like sort of painted over with this more more natural color, more fleshy, or you know tones that are a little bit more subdued this fluorescent pink is kind of glowing underneath and it gives this kind of sense of the unnatural to everything so in this moment i think that's my probably my favorite color when you have the elements the the areas where they're staining where the paint is sort of staining or blurring is this, does that come first is that when the canvas is raw and then you start with the staining then you then you pour on top or yeah it starts with the the staining happens in the stage of these kind of pores right. um so it's it's um sometimes more concentrated and sometimes, and then there's many layers that go into that. So I start with, with the pores, but then like the staining happens throughout the course of it as I'm, as I'm kind of, you know, color decisions happen right in response to other colors. So sometimes it'll shift quite drastically. And, but yeah, it's all about kind of creating these sort of uh, illusions and, and, um, and glazing in different ways throughout. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Huh. I don't know, actually. I think 
there was a lot of advice that came in the form of questions. I think maybe not received, but I did. One of my professors has um, Molly Zuckerman Harding has this manifesto that has deeply impacted. And I think in one part she wrote, painting reminds me I have a body. I think that that has guided a lot of, you know, I say that, I say it often, you know, when I talk to her, like her words from that manifesto sometimes come out of my mouth. Um, I've read, I've I've got that quote here saying that you said that. Yeah, Yeah. because I, because painting reminds, painting, absolutely. It reminds me I have a body. It reminds me I have a body beyond like my fingertips or my teeth that grind or, you know, the, the, the parts of me that I sometimes use, like painting reminds me that I exist in this body. So I think that I, I would consider that the best advice. Yeah, I, maybe I should probably like acknowledge that that comes from Molly a bit more than I have. But you it, just it, have. It, you just have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the world now knows. <laughs> she was. She was that that manifesto, and I think the many visits I had with her in grad school were some of the most fundamental conversations I had with this work. Well, it sounds like painting is vital for you then to just be your life. It reminds you of living. It reminds you that you're a body. It reminds you that you're present and. You need to do this. Yeah, I considered it like the wound that festered. Like you can't ignore it. So you have to address it. I love that. Well, we are so excited about uh, your exhibition, which opens July 14th at called Radical Contractions at the Whitney Museum. Whitney Museum, sorry. And it's uh, it's running for over the whole of summer. And Yeah, and it goes before. on until the 29th of October. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Yeah. So many people and, are going to get to see that, and it's completely free. It's in the lobby as you walk in. You go past membership, and it's just between the cafe, and then you can see the space. Yeah, and you can find details at thewhitney.org in their exhibition section. I agree, Russ. I mean, I, I've seen so many great shows in that space. Diane Simpson, Toyino mm, Jutola, mm. Salman. I mean, it's an amazing thing. So congrats, Ilana. And Thank um, you. If you'd like to follow Ilana on Instagram, you have your own Instagram, don't you? Oh yeah, it's um, it's just my name with an underscore between my first and last name. Have you jumped uh, on Alana. threads? There's this whole thing about threads happening right now, and everybody. I did yesterday. Done, you did as well. Everybody's done it. What is the artist? Not saying you're going to speak for every artist, but is there like an artist consensus where people are jumping on it as a means of a new means of kind of communicating their work and their practice? You know, it's funny. I don't the I don't really have any friends that are very engaged with Twitter. Like Twitter is a place where I engage with everybody, but the people that I'm friends with, uh, we share tweets to each with each other, but it's like we're engaged with comedians. Like I'm a huge fan of comedy. So my Instagram is not that funny. It's a lot of art, which is sometimes like, you know, takes itself very seriously. And I love, like, I, I'm in like queer comedy Twitter. So I'm trying to find a way to make my threads a similar situation where I can just like, because assuming Twitter is going to crash and burn real soon, you know, how do I translate all of that into... But it sounds um, like that's essentially what Threads is. It's just a replacement. Um, And from what I can gather already is that there's way less trolls. And there was some really interesting political stuff today where they were like, all those people that we thought were like a really evil movement are actually hardly anybody because none of them are on here. And they're all being, wow. all, I think the security settings and the way you can control your kind of uh, blocking people and stuff. You can't have more you... than one. You're not allowed to have more than one profile in the way that you can on Twitter, right? Yeah, or exactly. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. You, can't oh. tell, you can't go, you can't go in and out as yeah, multiple personalities exactly. and comment on things. Yeah. And also if you've already blocked people That's on your nice. Instagram, they're already naturally blocked on threads. There's loads of things like that. I, I just think it's going to get rid of Twitter. So bye Twitter. Listen, 
I think it's time. Yeah. I think, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I got threads made, like mere hours ago. So I'll <laughs> let you know. <laughs> yeah, keep what happens. Yeah, yeah, well, look, yeah. we will all discover that. So uh, looking forward to seeing your show. And um, thank you for today. It's been a real honor yeah, to speak with you. Thank you guys for having me. This Thanks was really for fun. Thanks everybody. Thanks, we'll be everyone. back very soon. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.